have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1 is where we will be this morning as we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Mark. Glad that you are here with us uh, this morning. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, We are thrilled that you are worshiping with us. We'll be in Mark chapter 1 in the middle of our sermon series, Invasion of the Lamb, as we explore uh, who Jesus is and who we're called to be as his followers through the gospel of Mark. You most likely heard the news uh, this week. Uh, Our little city, Houston, uh, got a little on the national news circuit for a decision that the Houston government made to subpoena a few pastor sermons. Um, to, to see what they have or haven't said about certain laws and, and certain decisions that the mayor has made. Um, I, my offense, or my reaction, like most people's reaction, was one of offense. So I was greatly offended. Um, but I came to find out that my offense was different from other people's offense. I was actually offended that the mayor had not subpoenaed my sermons. <laughs> As someone who likes attention, I was a little hurt by this decision. And yes, I was told I don't technically pastor a church in Houston, okay? Technically, my church is really small. Technically, I wasn't part of this group that was trying to, to get rid of this litigation about the HERO Act, all these things. Yes, I know, but I still am looking for the mayor's email address. I have lots of sermons to email her. Uh, so if you are in possession of that, I would love uh, to talk to you later. Uh, putting aside the, the political details of this situation, to speak to a larger, I think, cultural phenomena in our, our time period, what we're seeing is more and more, and we need to get used to it, need to be less surprised by this, um, we're moving in a post-Christian direction uh, where our culture is no longer controlled by you and I uh, as Christians, and our government's not controlled by you and I as Christians, and our society's not controlled as you and I as Christians, and whether you like that or not, I tend to, being from a younger generation, like that. I think Christians do better when we're the minority, uh, when we are kind of this small remnant who need to be faithful instead of telling other people what to do. But, but I get that not everyone's like that. Other people would rather we have control of the government and rather we have control of society. But whether you like it or not, the fact is that's over, and, and it's, it's continuing to be over and to be over and to be over. And as Christians, we need to, um, I think, stop expecting and then, two, stop being upset when we encounter struggle or when we encounter obstacles, or when we encounter temptation, or when we encounter persecution. Again, I'm, I'm not willing quite to say that getting your sermon subpoenaed is persecution in, in the global sense of people being killed for their faith and things of that nature. But the scriptures are real clear over and over again that as Christians who are living or are called to live a countercultural life, um, that we're going to encounter persecution and struggle um, and obstacles in our faith. We're told to expect it. I mean, throughout the scriptures, we're told to expect it. Um, so it shouldn't be something that surprises us that, oh, no, there are people who don't agree with what we agree with and who, who want to do things a different way. And then secondly, the scriptures are really clear throughout that we should rejoice in our sufferings, that we should be kind of almost proud of them, that we should not be surprised by them, and that we should also not be upset by them or like something strange is happening um, and this is not to say that, that Christians should have this martyr complex where we go out and are looking, right, to, to be persecuted against and to suffer. Um, and it's not to say that there's never a place to stand up for ourselves and to say, hey, we have certain rights as well. We need to be protected. Um, it's just to say, as we engage with our world, one, let's expect there to be tensions every now and then. And then two, let's, let's not throw temper tantrums about it, right? I mean, let's, let's react maturely to them. Let's not... Um, you know, get angry and offended and things of that nature. Um, St. Augustine, an uh, early church father, once said that God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Even, even Jesus, even our Lord, as we'll see this morning in our text, encounter suffering. 
encounters temptation, encounters obstacles. And you and I as followers um, not only should expect that, but we should know that that's coming in our lives. And we should have already counted the cost and be prepared for those sacrifices, um, for the sufferings that might come our way as we follow Christ. And so we'll see that this morning in our text in Mark 1. We'll pick it up in verse 12. We'll read from Mark 1. Uh, verse 12 through verse 20, we are now getting into the action of Mark's gospel. Um, and so we are going to read about Jesus beginning his public ministry. So Jesus is going to start to be the Jesus that we know, okay? Who goes out, who calls people to follow him, who performs these miracles, who preaches. Um, uh, in the past, we have read about John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus. Then we read about Jesus' baptism last couple of weeks. And then um, this morning, we pick it up in verse 12, after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit, Mark says, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he, Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, lots to, to look at in this text. As this characteristic of Mark, he packs a whole lot into just a very um, small number of verses. A few things to notice before we get into Jesus' public ministry, which begins with him going into Galilee and announcing something, proclaiming something. You'll notice after his baptism, um, which we talked about was kind of his like coming out party to the world, right? God um, rips open the heavens, a voice comes down, says, this is my son. This is the one who will accomplish my purposes. After this big kind of inauguration ceremony, we maybe expect Jesus to go into town triumphantly, right? To go receive his throne in Jerusalem. Instead, kind of anticlimactically, Jesus gets driven out into the wilderness. And he faces this kind of cosmic struggle in the wilderness. There's this kind of apocalyptic battle that happens. Um, it's, it's Jesus v. Satan, okay? In the, in the octagon in the wilderness. You've got, on one hand, Jesus with the spirit and the angels ministering to him. And then on the other hand, you have Satan. And you have the wild beast. And Jesus is in there 40 days um, and 40 nights being tempted. Mark doesn't give us a lot of details about what happens in the wilderness. Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more detail. But we know that Jesus faced this time of struggling, this time of temptation, where he had to decide whether he would be obedient to his father, to fulfill his call to be God's son, or whether he would choose another way. Um, this is the kind of battle scene, the first battle scene in Mark's gospel. We have um, been told, if you remember, that the word gospel um, means good news of a military victory from the battlefield. Um, we're told that this story is the gospel of Jesus, the good news about what Jesus has accomplished. And this is the first battlefield. This is the first place where there's a clash between Jesus and the ruler of this world, Satan. And as we'll see throughout the gospels, Jesus will come into these clashes with Satan or with people that Satan is controlling or with areas or situations that Satan is in charge of. Here, Jesus immediately is confronted by Satan, goes through this period of temptation and is victorious, comes out on the other side. There are echoes here of Israel's time in the wilderness. If you remember, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness where they were preparing to enter into God's kingdom, enter into the promised land. Um, this week in Wes's class, he had his students walk around outside 
uh, as kind of an example of wandering in the wilderness. It was an interesting object lesson because what happens when you take 20 middle-class privileged white kids outside for 30 minutes is they complain and they grumble. Um, and it's so hot out here and I just want to die and all these things. And, and then you, you really start to think about, wow, imagine that for 40 years, just wandering around with people who grumble, right? And just not having anywhere to go. Um, the Israelites had this period of testing in the wilderness and they failed that testing. If you remember, they constantly grumbled and complained and disobeyed. Jesus here, though, is faithful where they were unfaithful. Even 40 days is quite a long time. Um, you have to think that Jesus' ministry, when he goes and is preaching and is healing and is teaching, he's remembering not only his baptism when he hears this voice and the Spirit comes in him, um, but also this time in the wilderness, this time where his, his true decision um, to be God's son and to follow God into his kingdom um, was tested. Um, I think oftentimes when you and I decide to follow Christ, there's this period of temptation where we have to make some strong and big choices about whether we're really going to do this or not. Um, Jesus has the spirit descend on him and goes into the wilderness for 40 years. And then after John is arrested in verse 14, he starts his ministry. John's arrest, all the gospels say, is kind of like the launching point for Jesus' ministry. So Jesus, in a sense, picks up where John left off, his older cousin. John has been announcing the kingdom. Jesus now, when John was arrested, starts to go into Galilee, the upper part of Israel. He's going to wander from town to town to town, announcing the good news. So what I want us to do this morning is to do two things. One, I want us to hear Jesus' announcement. Because he's a wandering preacher. He's a wandering prophet. He goes from town to town, to village to village, giving an announcement, preaching a sermon. I want us to hear it. And then two, I want us to think about what it means to follow after him as we see Jesus call Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him. So first to hear the message of Jesus. He says this, he's proclaiming in Galilee the gospel of God, the good news, the good news of military victory from the battlefield, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news according to Jesus. The time is fulfilled um, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Or you might say God's reign is at hand. God's reign might be a better way to translate this phrase kingdom of God. For us, kingdom has this very spatial sense. We think of kingdoms in terms of space, where it is, this piece of land or this plot of property. Um, in, in the Greek here, when, when Jesus says God's kingdom is here, he's more talking about a time period, an age. A new era is dawning when God is in control. When God is decisively acting in his creation to transform it, to reflect his will and desire in the world. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. What he says, um, what he means by that is that all of these expectations that Israel have and all of these promises that they've been given are now coming true in his life and in his ministry. The time is fulfilled. He's talking about a story reaching its climax. He's talking about a grand narrative reaching its turning point. Um, and so to understand that, to understand the announcement, you have to kind of understand what the background story is. It'd be like saying to someone who had not seen the Lord of the Rings that Frodo and Sam have reached Mount Doom. Now, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, that means a whole lot, right? If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, the meaning kind of is, is unknown to you. You can kind of figure it out. There's a guy named Frodo. There's a guy named Sam. They're apparently going to a mountain, and they've gotten to the mountain. But without watching the movie and knowing the backstory, right, you don't know why they're going to the mountain, or what it means that they finally got to the mountain, or what they might accomplish being at the mountain. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, instantly for his Jewish hearers in Galilee, lights would have clicked in their minds. 
and they would have recognized what's being announced here, that all of God's promises are now starting to be enacted, that God is decisively showing up to do what he's promised to do, which is to reign over his creation. If you have your scriptures, flip with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, this is, I think, the best uh, Old Testament background passage here for Jesus' announcement that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Isaiah 52, we're on page 613 in your black ESV Bibles. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, Isaiah the prophet speaks of a time when certain things will be fulfilled and when God will begin to reign. And Jesus seems to be drawing on this tradition as he walks from town to town to village to village in Galilee. 52, verse 7, Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who brings gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, the Jewish people believe that the world as it is, um, as we see it, and as they saw it in the first century, is a good world that's been distorted by sin and death. Um, that's been distorted by, by false rulers and evil powers. And, and so that what you see in creation right now is not fully what God desires. I don't think it's hard for any of us to argue with that, that we see lots of things throughout the world that are not what God's plans for creation are. Um, God doesn't plan, God doesn't intend for creation to be ravaged by sickness and outbreaks of disease. God doesn't intend for creation to be ravaged by child abuse and poverty and war and destruction. Um, God is, according to the Jewish people, one day going to show up and decisively and dramatically act to transform the world. And reign over his world. In a sense to take back ownership. To take back control over a world that has gone astray. And Isaiah speaks of a time. A good time. How beautiful are the feet of the person who shows up and says it's time. Your God is reigning. The voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. They see God dramatically come back to his creation. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm, or he's flexed his muscle. Before all the eyes of the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There's this hope for the Jewish people that one day God would show up and decisively and dramatically act on behalf of his people and on behalf of creation. And Jesus says that time is now. 2,000 years ago, walking from village to village in Galilee, Jesus says the time is fulfilled and God's reign is at hand. As we flip back to Mark chapter 1, this sentence, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This serves as a summary for all of Jesus' preaching. This is his message in a few sentences. This is the thesis of Jesus' announcement to the world. He is announcing the fact that God's kingdom is showing up, and then what he'll be doing throughout his ministry is enacting it as well. He'll kind of put his money where his mouth is. So he'll say, God's kingdom is here, and he'll prove it when he sees a sickness. He'll heal the sickness. He'll bring God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And when he would see someone who's, who's dead, he'll raise them from the dead. And bring God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And when you see someone who is um, controlled or possessed by a demon, he'll cast out that demon and he'll bring God's will on earth as it is to heaven. He'll enact the kingdom of God. He announces it and enacts it. Um, William Placker says what Jesus is beginning here is the transformation of the world, which is why 
those in charge of the world as it was end up killing him. The kingdom of God is all about God transforming the world, taking ownership of the world, of his will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why it often creates problems with people who are in charge of the world as it is. Opposite of God's plans and God's desires and God's will. Now, there's a problem for you and I in that I think in a large way, the gospel for us, when we hear the word gospel, when we have... um, been told about the gospel, it has been reduced to a post-mortem journey um, about a decision about where you will go after you die. And so the, the story, the narrative that's given to us is that uh, at, the, at your death, everybody, all of humanity, no matter what, has one of two destinations. You can either go through door A, which is to go to heaven and spend eternity with God, or you can go through door B, which is to go to hell. And we've kind of reduced the gospel to that. The gospel becomes I'll affectionately term it a gospel of heaven and hell. And what I think we need to do is be very careful that when we use the word gospel, when we preach the gospel, when we tell people about the gospel, that we are telling people about the same gospel that Jesus preached. And Jesus preached what I'll term the kingdom of God gospel. And I think the two are different. I think a heaven and hell gospel is different from a kingdom of God gospel in significant and um, important ways. Um, that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, preaches about the kingdom of God. He doesn't show up saying, congratulations, I've got good news for once you die. You can go to heaven instead of hell. This is not his message. This is not what he's going from village to village telling people, right? He's not holding altar calls um, saying, if you were to die right now, where do you think you'd go after you die? I mean, it's just not, it's, this is not what he's doing. It's not what his ministry is about. This is not what the early sermons and acts are about. They're all about the kingdom of God invading the world right here, right now, and you and I needing to respond appropriately to that. Let me give three points of difference between a heaven and hell gospel and a kingdom of God gospel to illustrate what I'm getting at here. Um, the first one is this. In the heaven and hell gospel, the primary invitation of Christianity is to experience life after death. It's primarily focused on the future. The primary invitation is when you die, you can experience life after death. Um, in, con- in contrast, by comparison, the kingdom of God gospel is primarily inviting you to experience life now. It's inviting you to experience eternal life now. It's ex- inviting you to, to enter into the kingdom of God and experience what it, it means and it's like to follow Christ and to follow God and to enjoy his will here on earth as it is now. Um, the heaven and hell gospel is primarily focused on escaping this world this present world, this material world, and then going on to a post-mortem kind of spiritual world of disembodied spirits um, where we, we are in heaven. Whereas the kingdom of God gospel is less about escaping this world and more about God transforming this world. You might say the trajectory is flipped. Um, in a heaven and hell gospel, the, the point of the gospel is to get things on earth out of earth and into heaven. In a kingdom of God gospel, the point is different. It's to bring heaven to earth. That heaven might be on earth, as Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't say let us escape from earth so that we can be in heaven. He says let us see heaven come down to earth. The kingdom of God is about God invading into earth. Jesus the Lamb coming into earth to transform it. Not to take sick people away from the earth into heaven, but to heal sick people on the earth. 
That's the difference there. God's will being done on earth. The kingdom of God. In the heaven and hell gospel, actions, what we do with our day-to-day lives, are fairly inconsequential. They don't really matter that much because it's all about what happens to us after we die. And we have a hard time, Christians have had a hard time for the last hundred years or so, convincing themselves to act appropriately. Because why act appropriately if really the point of the game is just to go to heaven after you die? Why do I need to sacrifice things? Why do I need to not indulge in certain pleasures? Why do I need to not do certain things or discipline myself to do things um, that seemingly want to, to come natural to me? Um, in a heaven and hell gospel, what is created is a lowest common denominator Christianity, where you try to find the smallest amount of things you have to do in order to go to heaven after you die. And in different traditions and different um, communities, this will be different. So in some communities, you have to pray a prayer. In some communities, you have to go through confirmation class. In some communities, you have to um, fill out a card and get a certificate. In some communities, there are a, are a couple actions you have to live by, right? Tuck your shirt in, don't cuss, and don't watch rated R movies. And don't drink, right? And then as long as you follow these like basic rules, right, you'll be okay and you'll get into heaven. But you're constantly looking for this lowest common denominator. The question is, how selfish can I be and still get into heaven? How mean-spirited or unforgiving or unloving can I be and still get into heaven? What is the smallest common denominator? What is the, the checklist that I have to do? And then every conversation about ethics or actions beyond that gets confused. Because if, if someone were to tell you, well, you should forgive that person. Well, why? I accepted Christ into my heart. I'm going to heaven. That's what this is about, right? This is not about how I'm going to live my life right now, how I'm going to spend my money right now, how I'm going to treat people right now. It's about going to heaven. Versus, in comparison, by contrast, a kingdom of God gospel, a good news about the kingdom of God, says that your actions right now are incomparably important, are incomprehensibly important to how you experience God, to how you experience the life that he's come to offer you, to how you experience the invitation to live in the kingdom. And the kingdom of God gospel would tell you if you're not experiencing God's life right now, you should ask yourself why you think something magically will change when you die. What, what magical transformation is going to occur when you die to where you go from not experiencing God's life, from not living in the kingdom to all of a sudden living in the kingdom. The kingdom of God gospel says you are invited right now to enter into God's kingdom, to start living in God's will. And that that will continue on even after death. Death itself is not more powerful than God's kingdom. You'll be resurrected. The world itself will be resurrected. Um, The kingdom will remain. So Jesus goes into Galilee announcing the kingdom of God. He's saying, repent, turn away from your old life, follow after me. And then we see a a really haunting scene in verse 16. Um, And so look at this with me. Jesus is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. Then he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, and they're casting nets into the sea. They're fishermen. Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, Mark says in verse 18, they left their nets and followed him. What a strange little story. Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, sees some fishermen, walks up to them and says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they just leave their nets right there. And they follow after him. And then, without even commenting on the story, Jesus, uh, Mark continues, going on a little farther down the Sea of Galilee, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately, 
He called them, they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. Again, he encounters two brothers on the Sea of Galilee doing what they do, fishing. And he simply says, follow me. And they leave. In this case, they leave the people they've hired for that day. And they leave their boats and they go and they follow him. Jesus, um, his kingdom consists of bidding people to come and to follow him, to experience his kingdom life. And this call, this call story of the first four disciples, Simon and Andrew and James and John, is very interesting. It's very short. It's very simple. There's no explanation. We're left, at least I'm left wondering why they would have followed him. I feel like if I were to go to people today and just simply say, follow me, leave everything you've got going on right now and just do what I say, come over where I go, um, that I would be met with skepticism, right? And doubt and probably not a lot of followers. And, and we think, well, these people were so simple back then, right? I mean, no, these were, these were men, right? Who had lives and had families and had jobs. And yet there's this strange kind of power to Jesus' call over their lives. Perhaps Mark tells the story like this on purpose. Perhaps you and I miss out when we try to think or imagine that there was a time that elapsed between Jesus' calling and their following. Where Jesus explains it to them and shows them a PowerPoint presentation of why they should follow him. This is unique in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, having a rabbi or teacher and having followers is not unique, but usually followers or or disciples would come to the rabbi and ask if they could follow him. Jesus is unique in that he actually goes and picks his followers, his disciples, he calls them. Also in the ancient world, the Jewish world, um, you would only follow a rabbi or a teacher until you were at a stage where you could be your own rabbi or teacher and have your own followers or disciples. But as we'll learn in Jesus' case, there's no promotion for Jesus' disciples. There's no moment where they get to become their own rabbis or teachers. Um, It's a constant life of following Christ. You're always his disciple. You're always his follower. There's a strange power in Jesus' call to Simon and Andrew and James and John. Jesus commands. He doesn't explain. Jesus compels. He doesn't persuade. And it's often unexplainable why people respond and why people follow. Even maybe in our own lives, I think sometimes when we think back on when we started to first follow Christ or first heard his call on our lives, um, perhaps it's not always as explainable as we think it is. Perhaps there's just a strange power that gripped us where we were compelled and urged to follow him. We weren't necessarily persuaded. It wasn't always explained to us. There's not an easy way to, to formulate what happened and why it happened, but we, we just felt ourselves compelled to follow. And, and Simon and Andrew and James and John here, they uh, make a big sacrifice when they follow. Um, you've got to notice Mark is describing pretty accurately the fishing class of the time. So they're out in the Sea of Galilee, a very popular spot for fishermen, um, both then and now, um, famous for the fish tilapia, if you're familiar with it. It's called um, St. Peter's fish or Jesus' fish. Um, this is probably what they were catching at this time. Um, we know James and John, we often think of disciples as poor and uneducated. They definitely weren't rich and they definitely weren't educated. But James and John, at least here, are well off enough to buy servants, right? They're buying day laborers. So they've got a full established business um, with their father. It most likely goes back generations and generations and generations. And when James and John and Simon and Andrew follow Jesus, Notice what they're sacrificing. They're sacrificing financial security, which was more important back then than it is today. They don't have bank accounts. 
or debit cards. <coughs> They're living day to day, right? I mean, this is why Jesus says, um, give us today our daily bread, because you actually would have gone and bought what you were going to eat that day. It's not a guarantee. They're living financial security, and they're leaving their kind of social security. They're abandoning ties with their families, which, once again, is much more extreme back then than it is today. We're used to this idea of children one day saying goodbye to their parents. But in this culture, in a peasant village in Galilee, you don't do that. You, you stay with your family business. You stay with your extended family. This is your security in the world if something bad were to happen to you or to a loved one. But James and John, Simon and Andrew, they leave it. This little story here is a pretty earth-shattering little story for these four men as Jesus calls them to follow him. And I think there are three things we can learn about what it means to follow Jesus from this story. The first is that following Jesus is not just a mental exercise. It's not just an intellectual game where we agree to um, believe a few certain propositions or a few certain truths. Instead, following Jesus is a fundamental reordering of our socioeconomic relationships. It's a fundamental change in how we are in the world, how we relate to other people and how we relate to other things in the world. Following Jesus is a, a lifestyle change. Jesus says in his sermon, in his message, repent and believe the gospel. This word repent means to turn course, to completely reverse your life around. It's not simply to agree on a couple of things. It's to actually act and live differently. It's to turn away from the things that Jesus hates and turns toward the things that he loves. It's, it's drastic. And the disciples here who follow have a drastic life of obedience. I mean, immediately they leave the nets. They leave their father and the hired men and they follow Christ. Jesus calls for an entire abandonment of your whole life in order to follow him. To do what he's asked you to do. It's a reordering of all of your life. We are conditioned in our society to beware of and be nervous about fanaticism or someone who is completely devoted to a certain ideology or belief. The reason, though, is, is because oftentimes we've seen in the world and in history that such devotion can lead to violence and can lead to, to harmful behavior. But yet this is what Jesus calls us to, a kind of fanaticism where we abandon our entire lives in order to follow him. The difference is, as Christians, we follow the one who loves and serves and suffers. And so there's no need for us or the world to fear about our fanaticism. Because we're called as to, to be shaped in the image of Christ and to serve and to love and to suffer um, for the people around us. But following Jesus um, is not just this mental game where we agree to three or four truths. Um, it's this lifestyle game. It's this, it's this game where we actually have to turn around in our lives and reorder how we relate to things and stuff and other people. Um, you think of money, right? For a Christian, for one who follows Christ, Jesus has a very lot of tangible, real things to say about money. And to, to follow Christ is not simply to believe that Jesus is your Savior, but to live in such a way that he has called you to live. Generously, freely. Radically, To follow Christ is not simply to say that you believe that Jesus loves you. It's to love your neighbors as yourself. It's to forgive the people around you as Christ has forgiven you. It's to love even your enemies. It's an actual reordering of your life. A reordering of your relationships. The second thing we learn about following Jesus is that it involves sacrifice and suffering. 
It involves giving up previously dearly held things and a willingness to accept pain and struggle along the way. Already in Mark, we see this theme of suffering. John the Baptist, the first person to appear on the scene, is arrested. Spoiler alert, he's going to end up dying. We already see Jesus, as soon as he's baptized, driven into the wilderness and tempted. Again, God had one son on earth without sin, never one without suffering. One son on earth without temptation, without sin, but never one without temptation. Even Jesus himself was tempted. This real, genuine temptation. Jesus, eventually in the story, will be arrested and crucified himself. The disciples um, will eventually, most likely, be arrested, many of them killed. There's a sense that we're called to suffer. Andrew, Simon, James, and John leave their financial and social security. They're called to sacrifice in order to follow after to Jesus. Um, In our own lives, we're called often to sacrifice and to suffer. To be a Christian means to give up on certain goals for our lives. To be a Christian means to give up on certain rights and privileges that we might otherwise have as privileged, wealthy people in today's world. Um, particularly in our society where the number one goal or desire of most people seems to be comfort and safety, being a Christian often calls us to live at odds with that call, just to live in a way that perhaps we're not as comfortable as we could be, <clears throat> to live in such a way where we're not as safe as we could be, where we place ourselves in dangerous or uncomfortable situations. Um, many times this is one of the hardest things I think for us to accept about what it means to follow Christ Um, and when I encounter people who realize what kind of radical sacrifice following Christ involves but aren't willing to make that jump who just say I get it and I get how much it involves but I'm not I don't think I'm willing to do that yet I don't think I'm willing to take that step I often think they're closer to the kingdom than Christians who think following Christ is just a mental game At least they're honest about it, right? I mean, at least they've recognized that, yeah, it's going to involve a whole lot to follow Christ. It's going to involve some suffering. It's going to involve some sacrifice. At least you've you've been made aware of that reality. Jesus calls Andrew and Simon and James and John not to believe some simple truths about God's love for them, but to completely abandon their former lives, no matter what path it might take them down. And surely it will take them down a path of temptation in the wilderness. It will take them down a path of arrest, and it will take them down a path of the cross. And then lastly, the last thing we learn about following Jesus, it involves a reordering of our lives, it involves sacrifice and suffering, and it also involves a joining in Jesus on his mission. You see, Jesus says to Simon and, and, and Andrew, follow me, verse 17, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Um, disciples are called to follow and to join Jesus in his mission in the world. Now, we normally read this phrase, fishers of men, uh, to refer to the fact that as Christians, we're called to also go out and invite people to Christ. In the same way that Jesus has invited James and John and Simon and Andrew to Christ. Now, as I was reading, though, this week uh, and studying this passage, I came to realize this um, phrase, fishers of men, perhaps is misunderstood. Perhaps we have just kind of assumed what it means to be fishers of to be fishers of men. Um, Jesus is probably drawing on an Old Testament reference here. In Jeremiah 16, 16, in Amos 4, 2, in Ezekiel 29, there are these references to God sending fishers of his people. And they're all negative references. Being a fisher of men in the Old Testament is about God judging his people. If you think about it, fishing is kind of a, right, you're 
bringing something up out of the water. You're kind of killing something. It's kind of a violent metaphor, violent image. Um, God says to the Israelites, he's going to send fishers and hunters to come judge the rich and the powerful in his land. And so it's possible when Jesus tells Simon and Andrew and James and John, I'm calling you to be fishers of men, that he's calling them to this lifestyle where they will, by their radical generosity and enemy love, cast judgment on people who aren't following Christ the way they should be. Cast judgment on the people of God who think they're obeying God, but instead are living these comfortable, disobedient lifestyles of wealth and power and disobedience. He says, I'm calling you to be fishers of men. Perhaps it's a negative sense, um, and not just an evangelistic sense that Jesus is using this term. As well, if you, if you think of the metaphor seriously, right? Fishing, again, is a pretty violent kind of activity. I mean, we just pray that fish don't have that much nerves, okay, and aren't. I mean, I thank God that I'm not a fish, right? What a horrible life to live, especially if you're not grilled up right away. Think about just being hooked, right? I mean, just through your mouth and then throw back <laughs> into the water, and that's just your life, right? You're just constantly being played with by human beings. Um, this, this metaphor, right, of fishing men, hooking men, seemingly if you play out the metaphor, it's going to involve hurting people, right? I mean, you're hooking them, and then you're bringing them into a life where they're going to eventually die. But as we think through what it means to be a disciple, and what it does mean for these people to be disciples, we realize that, that perhaps the metaphor is not too far off. That to follow Christ involves sacrifice, involves suffering, in fact involves dying. Jesus will say, pick up your cross. The call to follow Christ is a call, a, a call to, to die. Perhaps Mark is purposefully playing with the ambiguity of this phrase. Perhaps Jesus is as well. Follow me, says I'll make you become fishers of men. But you and I, by following Christ, somehow join Jesus in his mission in the world, where we not only extend the invitation to others to follow him, but we also show the world what it means to follow him, to live with radical generosity and enemy love, and where we also call people, bid other people to come on this life of sacrifice and suffering. We're called to, to join Jesus in his mission. This is not just overseas or on short-term mission trips. This is in our everyday lives. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. If you are one of Jesus' people, you are called to join him on his mission. And so this morning I ask two questions as we close up. The first one is a simple question. It is, do you believe the good news of the kingdom? Do you believe, Jesus says, repent and believe. Do you believe that Jesus, so long ago, walking from village to village in Galilee, was right when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand? This is the time we've all been waiting for, for God to intervene dramatically in the world and set up his kingdom. And then the second question is, have you or are you following Jesus into his kingdom? Have you made sacrifices? Have you decided to follow? Have you reordered your life? Have you joined Christ on his mission? Or perhaps is there things in your life that you are not willing to give up? I'll follow Jesus if. I'll obey Jesus if. Those ifs reveal our idols, reveal our true gods. To follow Jesus means to completely abandon whatever else stands in the way. Have we truly adopted Jesus' mission as our own? Have we truly made his kingdom mission, enacting and proclaiming the kingdom 
our mission? Has that seeped into our consciousnesses on Monday morning and on Tuesday morning and on Wednesday evening and on Thursday at lunch? Is that in our very fiber and our very being? Do we see ourselves as fishers of men? This morning we respond to Jesus' call to our lives, his call to follow him by following him to the table, to the table where he we're reminded died for us, sacrificed his life for us. Likewise, we're called to follow him out into the world where the risen Jesus bids us to go and bids us to, to live lives of repentance and belief and lives where we fish men as he fished Andrew and Simon and James and John. Will you pray with me? We love you, Father, and we thank you for this day that you've